Well, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be able to come and to open the word of the Lord with you this day. Let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, as mentioned uh, in, in the prayer, let us be uh, in prayer for our pastor, Pastor Adam, as he is away uh, to Moldova and uh, others with the team here and a few from LBC as well as they are ministering there. Let's uh, be in prayer for them this week. James chapter 4, the text today is verse 1 to 12. I would like to ask that you would stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God this day. James 4, 1 to 12. Let us hear what the Word of the Lord says, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we humbly ask that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our lives. Our Father, we ask for ears to hear and eyes to see. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Many times I think it's easy for us to look back on the early church with a sort of nostalgia. I know that I have done this before. We might get the impression that things in the early church were really pure and pristine. 
Imagine being in a church that the Apostle Paul planted, we might think. Or how amazing it must have been to be in a church with Paul's young protege, Timothy, as he was the pastor and an elder of that church. Certainly, the church must have run smoothly. But you know as well as I do that when we read the New Testament, that's not always the picture of the early church that we get. When Paul left Ephesus, the wolves moved in. The churches on the island of Crete were beginning to accept false teachings. The churches of Galatia were beginning to add works onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were living in immorality, not practicing church discipline and openly accepting sin in their members. Jude wanted to write a letter about their common salvation, but found it necessary to write a letter of exhortation for them to contend for the faith. The author of Hebrews had much to say, but couldn't because the member, members of the churches had become dull of hearing. And we could go on and on. Pure and pristine, well, not so much. The churches that James was writing to were no different. They had some problems. I think we could say they had some major problems. The rich received preferential treatment. The ushers of the church, instead of welcoming everyone, put the rich people in the good seats, and maybe if they were Baptists, that would be the back of the service. And the ushers took the poor person in the shabby clothes and stood them off to the side in the standing room. Many in the church didn't think there was any need to actually be changed by this gospel message. They said they believed. Thinking a mere lip service was enough and sufficient. As we've seen, they had problems controlling their tongue. They blessed God and then turned right around and cursed one another. And today we come to fighting and quarreling. Sinful actions that characterized these churches that James was writing to. Now, let me just say from the beginning, I'm so very thankful for this church. I'm so very thankful for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and the witness that this church has corporately. We are not characterized as a fighting and quarreling church. At least that's not what the search committee told me when I was interviewing and candidating. Um, but it is true. We, we are not characterized by those things. But I submit to you this day, we still need to hear and receive these verses before us this morning. The truths these verses teach us are so foundational to conflict in general. Conflict that each and every one of us have faced, are facing, and will face. These verses are a warning for us. They're a warning. These verses should be a preventative for us as a church, a preventative for us as a gospel-believing group of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. 
We must always be on guard against this sinful fruit that can so easily come to describe a church and a congregation. We all need to hear this this morning. We all need to receive this word of warning. There's a flow to James' argument in these verses, verses one to five. And uh, hopefully the points that we have will align with this flow. Uh, This morning, uh, of those points, there are five points uh, that we're going to be looking at. That's in honor of Reformation Day, which is tomorrow. Uh, Five points uh, to the sermon uh, this morning coming from the text. Um, If you didn't get that, don't worry about it. Um, All right, let's begin by looking here at this flow. First, we see in this passage the problem exposed in verse number one. Secondly, we see the problem explained in verse two to three. Third, we see the problem condemned. And fourth, we see the instruction given in verse seven to 10. And lastly, we're going to look at some further application, applicable instruction. So two points of instruction. So let's begin by looking at the problem exposed. The problem exposed. Look with me at the first part of verse number one. James is writing and he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Let's just hold there for a moment. We get a glimpse into what was going on into these churches by what James is writing. Since James asked the question, we can be sure that this was something going on. This was something that they were struggling with. They were quarreling with one another. They were fighting with other church members. The words that James uses to describe their conflict are actually military words. Quarrels is, you could translate in other contexts, wars, literal wars, battles. Fights is used of conflicts in relation to enemies coming against each other. We could just say again, things were not going so well in these churches. People were fighting, they're battling, they're quarreling. And James just comes forth quite literally in these verses and he says, from where battles, from where quarrels among you? He's emphatically drawing their attention to what is the source of these issues. We can imagine, he doesn't go into the issues here that they were having, but we can imagine the types of quarreling and fighting going on by just what has already been written in this book. As we've seen, there's divisions between rich and poor within this congregation and congregations. Some parading around as Christians with no biblical fruit, a faith without works sort of Christianity that's running around in the churches. Some like to hear the word taught but never put it into practice. Some were probably seeking positions of leadership in the church so that they could get their way. We see that at the first part of chapter three, verse number one. They had problems controlling their tongue. They had bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. And so James is coming before them and he wants to expose this sin And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
James tells us, is it not from here? Is it not from your very own pleasures, your passions? In other words, James is saying the problem lies in you. The problem lies in you. The problem lies in me. The problem lies in you. Quarrels and fights occur because our passions are at war inside of us, in our members. Many times, isn't it right, when asked where a fight or a quarrel comes from, we say, well, from them, from that person. If only that person had not done this, and I obviously would not have reacted in the way that I did. I wouldn't have flown off the handle if they wouldn't have done this, if they wouldn't have said that, if they wouldn't have crossed this line. But James, instead of drawing attention elsewhere, draws the attention right to our own hearts to our sinful passions that are at war within us. The cause of sinful quarreling and fighting is from our own selves. Believers, haven't you felt this battle inside of you before? Of kind of raging within Something goes wrong in a conversation. Maybe somebody, another person says something a little edgy against you that maybe is is just pushing and you can almost feel the battle inside of you begin to rage and your members are at war and there's all of a sudden, there's a, a lashing that's getting ready to fly out of your mouth. Well, James doesn't just leave it there in the fighting and quarrel and and leave it there. He goes on to explain the problem in verses two to three. The problem is explained. He says in verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Those are strong words, aren't they? James says you desire to have something that you want, you want something, and you don't have it, you don't get it, so you murder. Now, some people do take this so far to say that they were actually murdering. I I don't think the text is going that far. I don't think it's uh, as if they had body bags carrying people out of their business meetings. I don't think that is what is going on here. Rather, James is just speaking in the same vein uh, of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. They were murdering each other with their angry words. They coveted something, they wanted something, they didn't get it, and so what did they do? They fought. They fought about it and they quarreled about it. Someone might have wanted to be in a position of power and authority in the church and they don't get it, so then they begin to cause problems. And then there was the issue of prayer in the second part of this verse. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. But it gets deeper than that. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. They didn't pray, but when they did pray, they asked for something only 
because that's what they wanted in the first place and they wanted it for themselves. They wanted, again, what their sinful passions desired. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we must fight against as Christians. We fight against in our lives the sinful desires, the passions that wage war inside of us. We are not to be controlled by them. Not that I know anything about it, uh, but I've heard that kids can throw temper tantrums. Uh, have you ever had this conversation with a child? No, now, your, your brother was playing with that toy. You can't take it from them, give it back. They had it first, it's their toy. I won't scream because I know I'm on this thing, but then, no, no, and they don't give it back, or maybe they chunk it across the room, or they begin to pitch a fit. They desired something, they coveted something, they couldn't get it, and because they couldn't get it, then they're just gonna pitch a fit. They're gonna fight about it, they're gonna quarrel about it. I want something, I don't get it, therefore, I'm gonna go crazy, I'm gonna pitch a fight. This ranges in matters big and small. We're all tempted in these ways. A husband has a desire, a passion, to sit in front of the TV and watch a sports game. Maybe your wife or one of the kids comes in, needs help with something, and they call from the other room, honey, can you come help me? No, I'm watching the game. Honey, please, I have a problem here. Fill in the blank. Up we jump, stomping in the room. What? Can't you see I'm trying to watch a game in here? You desire, you do not have, so you murder with your words. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Is it wrong to watch a football game? I would say no. Is it wrong to desire to watch a game so much that you sin in order to do it? Yes, yes. James exposes the problem here. He exposes the problem that we want something, we don't get it, and then therefore we sin. Thirdly, the problem is condemned in verse four to six. And boy, does James say some strong words in these verses. He really kind of goes a little Old Testament prophet on them here. He begins with an emphatic. He's wanting to encourage them to obedience. You adulterous people. <laughs> I could even sense that just reading in our scripture reading of of writing that to a church and just adulteresses, right? That's strong language, isn't it? For somebody to be writing to a congregation or a group of people and say, you adulterous people. This is Old Testament language, language that was spoken against Israel by the prophets, as you know, in the Old Testament. And here, James takes that same speech and applies it to the church, those that are in Jesus Christ. Just like Israel committed spiritual adultery in the Old Testament by worshiping God and 
God and the Baals or God and the Ashtaroth. So here, these church members were worshiping God and following their own sinful pleasures and passions. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world in these verses, as it's used, doesn't... uh, necessarily mean the people of the world per se. It's rather speaking about a worldly way of thinking that is opposed to God's way of thinking. And if one lives in such a way that he's buddy-buddy with the things of the world, James is saying, look, that's opposed to God. You're actually an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Really, James is calling them out here for trying to live on both sides of the fence. He's calling them out for a faith that does not have good works. He's calling them out in these verses so that they will return to God. Verse number five is notoriously hard to translate. The discussion is on whether God is the subject, that's how the ESV takes it, or the spirit is the subject, that's how the NIV will go with the ESV. I think that's the best one and we'll save that discussion for later. But what we do see here is the Old Testament concept of God being a jealous God for his people, that God seeks after his people. Verse number five says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, here's the quote in the hard part, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In short, this is getting at the concept that God is not going to allow his people to continue an open defiance and adultery before him. And that's why James is writing this letter to them. It's written to instruct them, to encourage them to quit living like the world lives. To, as we say, get off the proverbial fence. Live in complete devotion to God because God is a jealous God. God is jealous for his own glory. And James reminds these believers of God's character here. Yes, God is jealous for his people, we see that in the Old Testament of God pursuing the glory of his name. Look at the beautiful words James says next. First part of verse six, but he gives more grace. Praise God for his grace in our lives. That word coming to these churches that we're bickering, that we're fighting. I imagine these churches were cold, hard to be in, and James in front of them says, but God gives more grace. That when we sin, when we fall short, even as confessing believers, that God gives more grace to us. 
God calls us back even in our sin and the bad sin of these churches. He holds out God's grace and said, God gives more of it. God gives more grace to you. Return to him, come back to him. Reminds me of the hymn, Mar- or, uh, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It's God's grace that comes to sinners. He has more grace. Praise God for his grace. That is our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? That we, those sinners, can come to the cross of Jesus Christ confessing our sins, that we are sinners. We have broken God's law. Say, I'm a sinner. I'm coming to the cross. I'm trusting that Jesus died on the cross for me and God gives me what I don't deserve. He gives me forgiveness of sins. He applies the finished work of Christ on the cross to my life so that I can go free. I can be forgiven and receive God's grace. That is our hope. That's not only the hope for an unbeliever coming into the body of Christ, that's also our hope as believers in the body of Christ. That God gives us his grace each and every day that we can return to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ of trusting in the message of the gospel. We all need the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We always go deeper into the gospel. We need God's grace. James comes back around with another quote from the Old Testament. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, and he quotes from Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The call is for you and for me and these churches that James was writing to, to humble ourselves before God, to admit our sinfulness, to admit our shortcomings, to admit we're sinners in need of someone to save us. A prideful person could never say those things before God. God opposes the proud. He's against them, but oh, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the sinner in his wretchedness and sin, in his poverty that comes to Christ. James comes in this first verse, he exposes the problem, he explained the problem, and that was the condemnation. It was a strong condemnation to them and now he gives them instruction, instruction. James instruction, verse seven to 10. That's why we see at the beginning of verse number seven, or at least closely there too, therefore in the text. James is reaching back. You know how important this word is in scripture. He's reaching back into all that he has said and 
is saying, since all of that is true, since quarrels come from our sinful selves, since we sin, since friendship with the world is enmity with God, since God is jealous and opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, therefore submit to God. Submit yourself to him. That is James' instruction. That's his instruction to them in their sin. Return to God. Submit to God. What does it mean to submit? That's sort of a dirty word in our day and age. But we could translate it like this. Be under the authority of. Be under the authority of. So to submit is to place yourself underneath the authority and direction of someone else. And of course, in this context, James is saying, do that to God. Submit to God. Receive God's instruction. Listen to what he is saying to you in this letter. To humble oneself and to live in obedience to God's command is necessarily to submit to him. James is saying to not live like the world, to not be friends of the world. And so in typical, typical James-like fashion in verse seven to 10, he just gets his uh, little uh, command machine gun out and he just starts holding the trigger down and, and ablazing here. 11 commands in these verses from verse seven to 10, there are 11 commands. We'll take 15 to 20 minutes on each one, so I hope you brought your lunch. No, I'm just kidding. We'll just run through these kind of in the fashion. But 11 commands that he just blazes out before them. The main command is the first one, I do believe, as we've looked at. Therefore, submit yourself to God. I believe the rest of these commands in some way explain further what he means by submitting to God. Submit yourself to God, and here's what that looks like in your life. Again, James is going to give them some very clear example. We know he does this. So he begins. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. These are two parallel commands, really. Resist the devil, draw near to God. When we resist the devil, he flees. When we draw near to God, he draw, draws near to us. It's instructive for us to realize that these commands are given to these believers that James is writing to, these confessing believers. He's calling on them to repent and to return and to come back to God. We can't do these things in our own power. It's only by the grace of God. What does it mean to resist when he says to resist here? It just simply means stand against Stand against it. How do we stand against the devil? I would submit to you, we stand against the devil by drawing near to God. To turn to God is to necessarily turn away from the devil and to resist him. We draw near to God by being obedient to his commands. By faith in him and fruit in our lives. Draw near to him in obedience and prayer and not living like the world. So James gives them this instruction to resist the devil. And by this resisting of the devil, it means this type of fighting, this type of quarreling, this type of talking with your tongue, these sorts of things that they are doing. 
That's the devil's work. We've already seen how that's demonic in these, verse, in these chapters before. And James says, resist that. Resist that by submitting. James continues in the second part. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, this is Old Testament language that James uses of cleansing and purifying our hands from sin and our minds from being opposed to God. This language, again, takes us back to this concept of being adulterous that he's already said in verse number four. To be fully devoted to God, not to God and to something else. Listen to what James says next in verse number nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We don't hear this call too much today. To be wretched, mourn, weep, cry out loud. But remember the context with which James is giving this instruction in. This is a call to these sinful churches to repent Repent of their sin and turn back in obedience and submission to God. What this is, is a call to take sin seriously. A call to take sin so seriously that it would change your laughter into mourning. And it would change you from being joyful into being gloomy taking sin so seriously that one would go from laughing to weeping. Now, you well know that as Christians, we are called and instructed to be joyful, right? We're called to be joyful in the Lord, but this is no contradiction. Again, remember, he's calling on them because they're living in their sin. As they are living in their sin, they are to repent and mourn and weep and turn back to God. When we are living in disobedience, this should be our disposition. The call out to say to someone, don't go on wallowing in your sin. Don't continue in your sin to think this is something good or that you can be happy and that everything is just okay in your life as you're living in sin. James says that's not how you are to be. Instead of laughing, mourn. Start weeping, start crying. Take your sin so seriously that it affects you that you would turn back to God. James reminds us again in comfort in verse number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Can you see his call out to these sinners in the church? Humble themselves, that's what it means to weep, to mourn, to howl, all of these things that he says. Humble yourself, humble yourself before the Lord and God will exalt you. Submit to him. Humble yourselves before him in obedience. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. Those who humble themselves, God will exalt through Jesus Christ. This brings us to the end of the section in verse 
11 to 12, and James is continuing to give instruction. It's further applicable instruction given to them. And where else is he going to turn but back to the tongue? Again, you can see the problems that these churches were having again. I mean, chapter three was a lot on the tongue, right? I, that was a long extended section on the tongue and all the problems of the tongue. And here we go again. He's returning back to this concept of the tongue and how they're talking with one another, how they're fighting, how they're quarreling, how they're tearing one another up behind each other's backs. In verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't do it. Don't speak evil. He goes on to support the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So when James says that they are a judge of the law, he means that they're putting themselves above the law and in a sense, the judge of God's good law. So they're placing themselves above God's instruction. Instead of obeying God's law and speaking how God desired them to speak, they're tearing others down with fights and quarrels and ultimately they're thinking they know better than God by how they are acting. He says, you judge law, you're not a doer of the law. You're not doing, and of course that's a big concept for James, of obedience and doing. He says, all you're doing is you're just sitting back and you're judging God's commands. And then he keeps on jabbing with a knife in verse number 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one God and God is described here as the lawgiver and the judge. In other words, God is the one who gets to give the laws. God is the one who gets to say, this is what you are to do and not to do. Last time I read Exodus, it was God who appeared on Mount Sinai and not any of us. This is God's universe, it's God's world, this is his church and he's the one that speaks to it. He's the lawgiver, he is the one who gives instruction. To reject that, is to place yourself up in a position of authority over God, saying, God says this, but here's what I say. Here's how I'm going to act. And you're no longer a doer of the law, you're a judge of the law. And James kind of comes in this last verse and says, who are you to judge your neighbor? As if he's saying, who are you to act like that? Who are you to stand over against your neighbor? This whole concept of judging, this will take us before, but we know that we are called to judge one another. We're called to call each other lovingly into obedience into scripture. This type of judging here is these that are in this church bickering and quarreling and calling all sorts of false judgments upon one another. And James says, who are you to do that? Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. These verses are full of wisdom and instruction. 
I pray that we would come away from these verses and be quick to see our own sinfulness. To be quick to see that when fights and quarrels start, instead of looking out here, we need to look right here. And say, what are my passions that I'm acting off of? Are these sinful passions? Am I lashing out in a sinful way? Let me look and realize that I need to look to my own self. Because inevitably, inevitably, when fights and quarrels are going on, sin in your life is going to be involved. This is true individually. This is true in marriages. It's true with your neighbors. It's true in all sorts of relations. It's true corporately. Our corporate witness as a church, if, if we're people that are fighting and quarreling with one another, bickering, all those things, this is a warning for us. Let us be quick to see sin in our lives. I pray that we would be a humble people, a humble church, a people that come underneath God to submit to him, a church and a people that mourns over sin in our life, doesn't relish it, live in it, but takes it seriously. May our submission to God be seen in our actions towards one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word which is instructive to us. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls forth to give us more grace. Father, help us to be instructed from these verses. Lord, help us to be aware of our sinful passions in our own lives. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that would give glory and honor to you as we submit ourselves to Christ. As we submit to you, may your name be glorified and honored. And oh God, may you bring this about within us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.